Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And please do press that subscribe button on your iPhone or Android device. It makes a huge difference for us. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Matt Reed, who is the CEO of the Aga Khan Foundation here in the UK. Matt, welcome on board. Well, thanks, Alberto. Thanks very much for having me. Not at all, not at all. I've heard a great deal about the Aga Khan Foundation and met many of your colleagues over the years. Why don't we kick things off and just tell us a little bit about the work you guys do? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So the Aga Khan Foundation is one of 10 development agencies in something called the Aga Khan Development Network that were founded by His Highness the Aga Khan. They span all ranges of development, and we're working in every SDG. So everything from education to healthcare, rural development, microfinance, economic development generally, etc. Across all of those agencies, we have three basic goals. And those uh, are, in a way, are especially true of the foundation. So those three goals are, number one, to improve the quality of life in all its dimensions in the communities where we're active. The second is to promote pluralism. And the third is to enhance self-reliance or civil societies in those parts of the world. To tell you where we're working, we're working in Central and South Asia, East Africa, a bit in West Africa, and a bit in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And tell me, who is the Aga Khan? The Aga Khan is the 49th hereditary imam of the Shia Ismaili Muslims, which is a branch of uh, Shia Islam. Uh, he founded, uh, well, his grandfather founded some of the original uh, institutions of the Aga Khan Development Network. So the first Aga Khan school was founded 110 years ago in Kutch, in Gujarat, and in Zanzibar, in Africa. Now there are uh, some 350 of those schools uh, operating in, in Central and South Asia and East Africa. But the, his grandfather founded those schools originally as parochial schools, mm-hmm. so only for the Ismaili community. Today, those schools serve everyone. Anyone can go. When they were originally founded, the then Aga Khan gave his community two instructions. Number one was that they should educate their children in English, but also in a local language. So wherever they happen to be, this is a diaspora community that tends to move around a lot. And so he thought that they needed that kind of adaptivity and adaptability. Mm -hmm. But the second thing, which was very important, is 110 years ago, he instructed his community that if you have to choose between sending a boy and a girl to school, you should always send your girls. (laughs) And that was a way of – yeah, exactly. And so I say that because it gives you a sense of just how deep that commitment to women's empowerment is in the organization and how it runs through actually all 10 agencies um, that have been founded – subsequently by his the current uh, Aga Khan, His Highness the Aga Khan. And so, for example, the foundation just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, he, he founded it 50 years ago uh, with the idea of focusing on the poorest of the poor in some of the most remote parts of the countries where we're active. Um, and so uh, in at that time, the first countries we entered were Pakistan, uh, India, we were a bit in Bangladesh at that time. 
Um, and then eventually we have grown and are now active in some 20 countries in, as I said, Central South Asia, uh, East Africa, West Africa, a bit in the Middle East. I remember when we were meeting for a coffee a little while back, you were telling me about the organization's size and its sheer size, its sheer scale is really impressive. Well, it is. It is. It is a, a quite a large organization. Um, sometimes I joke that it's it's the largest organization you've never heard of because mm-hmm. uh, the, it, it, it you know some people don't always know that the Aga Khan group is behind uh, certain certain activities. So across the, the the network, so the ten agencies, we employ between eighty and ninety thousand people. That does not count then the communities or the volunteers that we work with. Just to give you a sense of that, I mean, the foundation alone um, works every year with 40,000 civil society organizations. You know, Incredible. so imagine that. It, it really is something that I think is quite distinctive about us. You know, if you, if you think back to when the foundation started 50 years ago, the initial idea and animating philosophy was that we needed to work with communities, understand, for, number one was actually understand the communities that we were going into and ask them what they thought was important for their development. And so at that time, it's now become relatively commonplace, actually, you know, this sort of participatory development, um, mm-hmm. PRI approach, those sorts of things. But at the time, 50 years ago, it was not common. At that time, it was much more about, you know, top-down uh, solutions and strategies, um, sort of highly technocratic. And our view and his highness's view in particular was that in order for development to be truly long lasting, people have to be themselves, the agents of change. They have to identify and prioritize their own, the own aspects of development that are the most important to them and that they want to deal with, because it's that way that you create that local ownership. So our approach from the very beginning has then been to form representative groups at the local level, so village organizations, uh, sometimes district organizations, et cetera, but usually at the village level. Village organization, it would be composed of men and women, uh, people from all faiths and backgrounds, so that everybody in the villages is represented in that sense, Mm -hmm. and to facilitate a conversation with them. What are your needs? What's not working? What could be better? Uh, and then asking them to prioritize those things. And then our role as the foundation is to help bring technical, financial, uh, and other resources to bear on those problems with them. And so the other fundamental thing about our work is that, you know, we often say, oh, well, we, we the foundation, do X or Y. But in point of fact, when you go to the communities, they will tell you we did it, meaning we, mm-hmm. the community. So when I go, you know, for example, I was in northern Pakistan this summer looking at some communities where we've been active for 40, 40 plus years. And the sense of pride and ownership there was palpable. I mean, just to give you an example, I visited a mini hydropower station that had been funded with DFID money mm-hmm. in the 90s. Clarify DFID for our, our listeners Sorry. who may not be familiar. DFID is the yeah. Department for International Development of the UK. So UK Aid, uh, they also are, they're also know, known as. So so originally DFID had uh, provided this money, co-financing work that we were doing with these communities to put in this micro hydropower station. That had then been rehabilitated with money from the German government in the 2000s. 
And then the month that I was there, it had been reopened because it had been rehabilitated with uh, money that had been saved by the community. During that entire 30-year period, it was owned and operated by that community. They have a community management committee. That committee is in charge of its running and uptake uh, and collection of fees. And so it really had become a community asset. And so they don't think of it as an Aga Khan project. They think of it as a um, Garam Cheshma mm-hmm. project because that's the village they happen to be from. And I think it's, you know, you could you could go through the 40,000 community organizations we work with and you would you would hear many, many, many multiples of that 40,000 number stories along those same lines. It must be uh, mind blowing to have to manage relationships with 40,000 stakeholders. And that's and those stakeholders aren't even the individual level, are they? I mean, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, we, we do have a lot of stakeholders. Hopefully that's not your remit entirely. No, 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 no. I've got a different set of stakeholders <laughs> right. that I'm that I'm dealing with here. I mean, our role in the UK in the foundation is to represent not only the foundation's work, but the work of all 10 development agencies to European development partners, some okay. in Asia and some in the Middle East. So those are my stakeholders primarily, but always in consultation with our people on the ground, in the field, doing that work with those communities, because ultimately, of course, they're the most important ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, it, it is possible that we would go to them and say, well, you know, uh, the German government or the UK government, et cetera, would like to work with us to promote X or Y. And they might say, well, you know, we, that's not really a priority for us. We would, we would much prefer a school or we would prefer a road or we would prefer, you know, assistance getting our girls uh, to and from home to school or, or our real problem around girls' education is that we don't have enough female teachers. And so why don't you work with us on that? And then mm-hmm. we have to find ways to be adaptive and reactive to them, it, you know, uh, within within the confines of the way that uh, the current world of development works, which is that oftentimes, um, certainly if you're, if you're partnering with government organizations, um, they do have fairly fixed views of what needs to happen in the world. And so the tension that we have is always trying to balance that kind of central impulse for, you know, looking at value for money and targeting results, et cetera, with adaptivity on the ground to meet the needs of the people uh, we're working with. Easier said than done, probably. Much easier said than done. Absolutely. But we have, I mean, I would say, but we're, this is where, um, the, the word foundation is probably quite important to our operating model because we are, we are immensely privileged to have His Highness the Aga Khan who provides a large sum of money to our annual operations every year. And so um, together with individual donors from his community but from many others, we are able to provide a continuity of, of engagement in places and I think that's the other thing that's important about us is that when we move to these places, we we stay there and we see ourselves as being permanent resources for development in mm-hmm. a place. Um, we generally – it's very rare that we would leave a region or a country um, because in that sense, we're not donor dependent. We do oftentimes require um, – partners uh, and you know government partners or other large partners to go to scale but mm-hmm. we will always try to maintain a basis of engagement in those communities so that we can as I say be a permanent resource now that doesn't mean we're doing the same thing over and over and over again for 40 years in fact what we want to be is there and that we can be adaptable uh, uh, with those communities uh, according to their needs over time yeah 
it helps that you yourself, you've been in the front lines, right? You were the CEO of the Aga Khan Foundation in India. Exactly. I was the CEO for the Aga Khan Foundation in India for three years. So I was there for, for from 20, 2013 until 2016. The roles there, looking at sort of delivery of resources on the ground there versus your current role where it's more about generating support and income and building those coalitions to drive those operations in places like India. Any CEO's role is always going to be about securing resources for the work. Um, that's fundamental to getting it done. Uh, India, in that regard, is no different. In some respects, requires a bit more of that side of it than, than maybe some other places we work, simply because uh, the government of India has said to most of the bilateral donor partners that um, they do, it doesn't want their aid money. It wants their technical expertise. And so India is a very unique and interesting um kind of uh, philanthropic uh, area right now with a lot of CSR, foundations, uh, community engagement, et cetera. So in that sense, as a CEO, you do actually always have to be looking at, well, how do we create the coalitions of like-minded groups um, so that we can meet those needs? But you're absolutely right that my role in India was much, much, much more operational. Mm -hmm. um, we work there. The foundation in India set up uh, a separate entity called the Aga Khan Rural Support Program that is a 100% Indian NGO staffed entirely by Indians. And the foundation now, I should say, is staffed 100% by Indians. I mean, when I, my, one of my jobs when I was there was to recruit my Indian successor, so to sort of take myself out of a job. And I was the last expat mm -hmm. in, the, in the organization at that point. But... Um, but through those two organizations, both of which are operating entities, so we're both implementing programs on the ground together in coordination and cooperation. Um, we had about 500 uh, staff people and then many multiples of that in terms of community volunteers and working through community organizations. So it was quite a large operation, but one that's been well established. I mean, uh, the India program was, again, founded roughly 40, 45 years ago. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was a, a, a very, what should I say, very challenging, very interesting, um, and incredibly rewarding. Um, it just makes, uh, it makes such a difference to be going to places and seeing the work on the ground, uh, seeing how communities react over time. We had a really sort of luxurious in a way opportunity in India and I don't mean luxurious in the sense of plush and comfortable. I just mean luxurious in the sense that we're working in some very deprived places, but where we've been a partner with them for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so when I would go to those places, they could tell me a story about their own development that, um, that helped me understand much, much better their history and our history with them. And then there are other parts of the country where we had established operations relatively recently. And what I found fascinating was seeing the difference in the quality of the community engagement, the way that the communities themselves were either owners or not of their own development strategies. Mm -hmm. And so it was just fascinating from a, you know, almost like an anthropological perspective, but also so engaging because, you know, now when I go back, um, I'm able to see things that we started when I was there six, seven years ago um, begin to bear fruit. And you see a qualitative difference in the kind of relationship that 
you know, the sort of newer communities have with our staff there. Because as I said, when we go, we stay. And so, it, we, you know, it was just, just fascinating. I, mean, I could tell so many stories about those kinds of interactions. But those were the things that I found really the, the richest uh, while I was there. How did you find yourself... Well, how do you find yourself where you are today? How did, what was your career trajectory? Because you're not originally from the UK or from India. Tell us a little bit about your no. story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm uh, so I grew up in a tiny town in Oklahoma. Actually, it's uh, a town of about 5,000 people in the northwest corner of the state, a village in a way, you might say, mm-hmm. a farming community. And, um, you know, we, it, 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 well, it's the sort of place, you know, when you grow up in a small town, uh, a lot of times you say, well, gosh, I just want to get out of here. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, in a way, was one of the things that animated me, even though I love it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's called Alva, Oklahoma. My parents still live there. Uh, it will, it, 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 is, it is home, and it will always be home. But, you know, uh, I wanted to get out and see the world. I wanted to do things. I wanted to be elsewhere, in a way. The other thing that was important for me is that I grew up in a very Catholic family where giving back to the community – uh, volunteering was just part, that's just what we did. It was just very, very important. Growing up in a small town, um, there's a strong volunteer ethic. And so those are just things that I, that I grew up with. And so when I was thinking about, well, you know, if I want to leave this town and I want to leave my state, I want to see the world a bit, that just seemed to me the most natural way to do it, frankly. Um, uh, so that I, you know, uh, I could sort of marry, two things that I thought were really important, which is one is, is making a difference in the world and making a productive difference in the world. And the second, which is seeing so much more of the world. And so I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate uh, to be able to do the work that, that I do. Did you get into philanthropy right after uh, university or, or was this? No, uh... it was a very circuitous route. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to university in, in Oklahoma at the University of Oklahoma, and then I went to graduate school in Los Angeles, um, thinking that I wanted to be a professor, actually, of European history. And so I did my dissertation research in Paris. Um, and at the end of that research, I wasn't quite ready to move back to the States. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it was going to be, it was a tough academic job market, and I just wasn't ready to come back yet. And I had the good fortune to work at a place called the Salzburg Seminar, mm-hmm. which is a sort of Chatham House-like institution based in Salzburg, founded after the Second World War, to be a kind of Marshall Plan for the Mind, uh, a place where it would you know, bring together people from all backgrounds, all um, at that time was focused on Axis and allied countries at that time. But then when I had got there, it had really become a global institution. And so we were bringing about a thousand people a year to Salzburg for seminars on topics of global concern, everything from the delivery of healthcare in the developing world to the management of cultural institutions in transition to human rights and democracy, um, those sorts of issues. And so it was like a three-year postdoc mm-hmm. in international affairs. I was a program director there. Uh, and I realized when I was there that actually as rewarding as I found um, academic life, actually um, this call to try to be making a difference in the world was stronger and that that's what I wanted to do. And so that's what got me on this path. And so when I was there, I uh, had the good fortune to work with a, a person named Jonathan Fanton, 
mm-hmm. who was was then the chair of the board of Human Rights Watch and the president of the MacArthur Foundation. He happened to be looking for an assistant um, at MacArthur to help him with external relations and speech writing. And so I applied for the job and I got it. And um, then that's what got me into the world of philanthropy. Excellent story. And you're not looking back now and saying, oh, I wish I stayed in, in academia. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I actually, I love academia. I mean, the nice thing about the network is that we run uh, two universities. So mm. I get to dip my toe in and kind of look at it from afar, uh, which is great, actually. Um, but, uh, but, but, I, but I love what I do. Tell me about those two universities. The, 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 the two universities, one is Aga Khan University, which is uh, primarily based in Pakistan with some operations in Afghanistan and then a network uh, of regional campuses in East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. Mm -hmm. Um, It was founded uh, 35 years ago, I believe. And it originally started out um, as a teaching college. So meaning a teaching college for teachers to, to form teachers and form nurses. Um, because his highness's view at the time was that if he wanted – and it was founded, I should say, in Pakistan. That's where it started out. Mm-hmm. And his view was that if you wanted to make a long-term difference to the development of the country in order to to fundamentally change the human capacities uh, of Pakistan, you needed to start with teachers and you needed to start with health. And so who are the – kind of fundamental workers in any health system or, or, or educational system is teachers and nurses. And, uh, and with the additional benefit that um, because, again, women's empowerment and development is so important to our organization, uh, his view was that by professionalizing those two occupations, which were both are essential to long-term development, but often in the parts of the world we work are very undervalued, mm-hmm. that by investing intellectual resources in them and bringing them some prestige as professions, really professionalizing them, um, you could over time create a much more robust um, generation of teachers and nurses. And then from that, the university has expanded. And so now it's a full medical university offering you know, specializations in uh, nursing, medicine, postgraduate medicine. It's due, it has a very extensive research program uh, as well as as running a, a network, a teaching network of hospitals and clinics. Um, I mean, in in Pakistan alone, it operates some six hospitals and right. you know, 250 plus clinics. Um, it, it has a teaching hospital in in Kabul uh, and and a similar infrastructure in East Africa, in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, and is now in the process of becoming a, a liberal arts university. They'll be <laughs> establishing. Not? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, his, you know, it's funny. Yesterday we were um, – the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge visited our center here mm-hmm. uh, in London in advance of their trip to Pakistan next year. And so they uh, met with His Highness. Um, and during one of the conversations uh, that he had, he talked about this need to be to, – to develop the institutional capacities in the country – uh, to create a new generation of, of of professionals across all of those fields, and so in a way, I think what the university is now hoping to do is to replicate its success of the past thirty five years in medicine, uh, and to do that in fields as diverse as law and architecture and uh, political science and and you name it, um, mm-hmm. because you know obviously that is fundamental to the long term 
um, growth and development uh, of, of, of the country. Um, now, that's Aga Khan University. There's a second university called the University of Central Asia, okay. which is much newer. It's a, a four-way public-private partnership between uh, His Highness the Aga Khan and the governments of Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a public-private partnership established in uh, 2000, coming out of the post-Cold War era and the fall of the Soviet Union, um, and is uh, a university that is designed to address the the human capacity needs of Central Asia writ large. And so originally, their idea for creating it, when they created it, was that it would actually be a liberal arts university mm-hmm. um, from the beginning, because their view was that the kinds of capacities that are going to be most needed in those economies in the future were creativity, critical thinking, the ability to sort of sort of entrepreneurial thinking, if you will, things that uh, were not uh, at the fore in the Soviet educational system, as good as it was, frankly, in many, many ways. I mean, the levels of literacy that you would find in a place like a Tajikistan or a Kyrgyzstan are extremely high in the mm-hmm. 90% range, um, you know, at a level where in so many other countries where we work, very impoverished countries as well, you know, you would uh, you know, you, you, you just think if you could have 90% literacy rate, we, we would be, we would have, it's done. Our, our, our job is done. The University of Central Asia now has campuses open in uh, Nerin in southern Kyrgyzstan and a place called Korog in southern Tajikistan and will soon open one in a place called Tekeli in Kazakhstan. Um, and it's a, it's a very unique and interesting experiment, actually, in education, trying to bring Central Asians from a region that's traditionally been quite bifected, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sort of into uh, divided uh, into Tajik, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, Uzbek, etc., and really trying to create much more of a regional identity in a way, certainly more regional exchanges, as well as a regional knowledge base about the challenges facing these these mountainous areas caught in a way between China and Russia and trying to find a, their, a new way in the world. Fascinating. Tell me, we spoke a little bit about the, uh, the scale of the organization in terms of human capital and the 40,000 partners, uh, but in terms of the financial resources that you're deploying globally, what does that look like? I mean, it must be tremendous. Well, it's quite large because, so across the 10 agencies, um, we have one agency that is for profit but for development. Mm-hmm. So that means that all of the proceeds from the businesses that are operated under that arm, all the proceeds from those businesses get reinvested in the group. That side of the group is uh, focused on addressing binding constraints on development, so financial services, telecommunications, infrastructure, uh, especially uh, clean energy, all those things that you need to have the kind of fundamental building blocks for economic development in a country. Um, and then the second thing that it is designed to address is to promote maximum employment. And mm-hmm. so we're involved in activities that have very long value chains. So, for example, uh, if you've ever stayed in a Serena hotel, um, those are owned and operated by our group founded by His Highness 40 plus years ago in order to, to jumpstart and create a tourism economy in Kenya, which it did do and which has brought a lot of economic value to Kenya. But at the time, people looked at the idea of establishing 
a kind of you know luxury hotel in that part of the world and thought it was a bit crazy. Um, but to be <laughs> honest, um, you know that that gives you a sense of the the kind of visionary approach of the organization, which is to try to make these really long-term investments. Some people like to call them long-term bets, mm-hmm. um, but really long-term investments in a place and see if it, we can make markets in some places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now the Serena Hotel Group has gone into uh, a whole range of places in Eastern Africa, as well as in South Asia, and again, employs thousands of people. So, uh, so that side of the group is a roughly $4.5 billion a year operation across uh, something like 70 different project companies. Mm-hmm. Again, many times you wouldn't know that those are owned and operated by Aga Khan entities because they don't have Aga Khan in their name. Right. Um, but we are owner-operators of them, like the Serena Hotel Group, like a thing called Industrial Promotion Services Kenya, which actually operates about 1,000 megawatts of clean energy in Africa, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, et cetera. Then we have the other nine uh, agencies, the not-for-profit agencies, working across health, and education, and microfinance. And there, the, the annual operations is, a, is roughly a billion a year. So if you were to look at all, you know, all 10 agencies, it's roughly 5.5 billion a year in annual operations. And this is all to improve the world. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, his, it is no, you know, I mean, it's very interesting, you know, his highness, when he talks about what motivated him to found most of these agencies, or at least to turn the agencies that he inherited from his grandfather into full benefit institutions open to everyone and benefiting everyone, Uh, you know, he, he would say, and he has said that his motivation is that as a Muslim spiritual leader, he has an ethical obligation to try to improve the quality of life for his people, so for Ismailis, but for everyone they live with and come into contact with. And so he interprets that, what he would say is his ethical or spiritual mandate Mm -hmm. to do good in the world as something that extends to really everyone he comes in contact with. And so the sole animating force of all 10 of those institutions is to improve the quality of life for everyone residing in the places where we're active. That's amazing. Tell me, what does um, what does success look like to you in the next 10 years? And it dovetails very nicely with the sustainable development goals. And what does success look like in the next 10 years? Absolutely. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, we are we are working in all 10 or sorry, in all through the 10 agencies, we're working in, in every uh, sustainable development goal. The 17 SDGs. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, because we thought we why focus? Um, we'll just buy go for every portfolio. Go. Yeah, exactly. Go for everything. <laughs> go big. Um, go all go all in, <laughs> as they say. Um, also, frankly, uh, you know, we have been advocating uh, this sort of a, a holistic approach to development. His Highness has been uh, really saying that sort of thing for decades, that if you want to make a difference, uh, a long-term difference in a place, you really do have to address all of these interlocking elements of development. So um, so obviously, we're committed to the SDGs and doing our part. From an institutional standpoint, we have just crossed a really interesting moment in history where His Highness the Aga Khan just celebrated 60 years mm-hmm. as the head of his community. Um, he had what's called his Diamond Jubilee. 
And as a non-Ismaili, what I found fascinating was that, um, you know, I sort of expected that this would be a year when His Highness would go and meet with his community and talk about all the amazing things that he's achieved, frankly, uh, Mm because that's what I would have talked about when I look back at what he's done in the 60 years that he's been head of that community. It's pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And actually, he took precisely the opposite approach. A year leading up to it, he convened all of our development agencies, each agency, and commissioned a a set of assessments Mm -hmm. of where we thought the sort of the what what was the development condition in each of the places we're active what had we got wrong and where do we need to make more investment where do we need to double our efforts what's not going right and across that a few key things came out that are completely complementary with the SDGs but that will guide our work over the next 10 years in particular one of them was um the 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 fundamental problem of malnutrition mm-hmm. in so many of the places we're working. So even in places where we have doubled incomes, helped double crop yields, um, helped increase access to those places, we are still finding levels of stunting that are just unacceptable. You know, mm-hmm. when you go, you look at places in Pakistan, and when you think that, tell our audience about stunting a little bit because not sorry, everybody, yeah. So stunting, stunting is is a phenomenon where um, children who do not receive enough caloric, who don't have enough caloric intake during the first two years of life, their growth is permanently stunted. Mm-hmm. Their brains do not develop uh, as fully as they can, and they don't um, their their bodies don't grow uh, to their full potential. So they they're not as tall as they could be. Many of them have other sorts of they can have. Uh, other sorts of developmental difficulties, depending on the degree of uh, malnutrition that mm-hmm. they've experienced as their children. And so what the brain science shows is that the, those first thousand days of life are absolutely critical for getting um, and overcoming malnutrition. However, there are also there are danger zones later in life. So these transitions into adolescence and at other moments when having the right caloric intake is really, really important for your physical, emotional, and cognitive development. But what's also really interesting is that the science shows that you can also, in certain times, you can make up for lost time. So in these critical danger zones, there are also moments where with really concentrated um, activity uh, and and caloric um, uh, boosts, you can make up for lost time. And so what we've now done is we're embarking on a multi-country initiative over the next 10 years to look, study systematically in cooperation with Aga Khan University and a, and a, a very well-known researcher there named Zulfikar Bhutta, uh, as well as our agencies on the ground uh, working with the, some really of these malnourished pop- populations in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, to map out what are those moments in life where you can, through these caloric boosts and uh, a suite of programs, make up for lost time, as it were, mm-hmm. and and sort of recuperate in nutritive terms lost time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, – so that, for example, is one of the things that we'll be focusing on in these places over the next 10 years. There's some fundamental infrastructure challenges. So around so – so the second thing that came out is the existence of persistent um, ultra-poverty. Mm-hmm. In many of the places we're working, 
And so uh, we've now looked at, well, what are the causes? What are the things driving that? And what can we do to address them? One of them in, the, in many of the places we work, because they're so remote, um, is access. And mm-hmm. so we will be doubling down, as it were, on connectivity and regional connectivity initiatives, everything from link roads to trunk roads to bridges and um, things like hydropower, all the things that are the f- those fundamental building blocks that you need in order to get local economies going. The third thing um, coming out of that assessment is that while we feel like we've had relative success in things like improving agricultural productivity, uh, natural resource management, and those sorts of things, um, there's much, much, much more that we could do and that needs to be done in terms of job growth and job creation. So mm-hmm. really trying to create new initiatives to help micro-entrepreneurs become small business owners and small business owners become medium-sized business owners to just drive more job growth. Because even though we've been very, very active in promoting education in many of those places, um, the jobs just aren't there. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth thing um, to end uh, would be climate change. I mean, that in a way, I probably should have started with that because it is fundamental and, and underlies all of those things. But coming out of his Jubilee year, His Highness has convened um, a group of people to begin looking very, very systematically at the climate change issue and to see how can we leverage our agencies to help these communities um, mitigate where possible, but certainly adapt to the catastrophic effects that climate change is likely to have there. Well, that's really an impressive body of work that you guys are uh, undertaking. Tell me a little bit about the um, key takeaway. If our listeners walked away having forgotten everything that we've just spoken about, but kept in mind one key takeaway after the podcast episode, what, what would that be? Well, I hope that they would go away and they would say something like, you know, I had never heard about the Aga Khan Foundation <laughs> until I, I heard about this, but I was really impressed by their long-term approach by the fact that they want to improve the quality of life in all its dimensions and that they're promoting pluralism and they want to work and do work with everyone. Mm. And in today's world, that message seems to me um, as important now as it has ever been. And if uh, a person listening to this podcast comes away and they was able to say those three things about long-term improving the quality of life and promoting pluralism for everyone, I think I would be just delighted um, if that was the case. That sounds excellent. Now, if somebody wanted to get a hold of uh, either you or actually if they wanted to find out more about the foundation and maybe, dare I say it, volunteer, apply for a job, get involved, what's the best way? <laughs> where, where should they go for that? Absolutely. Well, there are a lot, lot, we have lots of channels. Um, so one would uh, the, the best place to go is to uh, akdn.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to our website. That's where all of our jobs are advertised. That's where you can find out information about all of our agencies. Uh, if you're interested in my little take uh, on the world and on the world of AKDN, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Matt Reed AKDN. Um, we also have several uh, Twitter feeds uh, and are on Instagram, uh, either through at uh, AKF Global or at AKDN. Um, uh, and then once you start looking for those, you'll find many, many other handles, uh, for the various agencies and those would be some good places to start. Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, Matt, it has been a real pleasure having you on board today. 
we could certainly easily have two episodes out of this. <laughs> so you may have to come back at some point and shed further light on, on, on the amount of work that you guys are doing. But it's been delightful. I wish you continued success to you and your colleagues in this amazing work that you're doing across the world. And uh, thank you very much. And to our listeners, please do subscribe. Please do share. And if you're interested in all the bits that we've been covering today, get a hold of Matt or the organization, the Aga Khan Foundation, and find out more. Thank you, Alberto, really. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm-hmm.